Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. We're making a journey through this incredible book. No one knows who wrote it. My favorite theory is it wasn't originally written, it was preached. It was a sermon or a series of sermons. And it really kind of flows like that because it's hard to stop reading. And it's hard to start reading too because you're like interrupting a thought, so you got to go back. It's happening today. Chapter 3 opens with the word therefore. Well, anytime in the Bible you see the word therefore, you got to see what it's there for. So you back up a few verses into chapter 2, verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that's the Lord's creation, that's us, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So he's talking about the Lord coming to earth, becoming a human, living as a child of Abraham, fulfillment of Abraham's promise, who would bring a seed into the world that would bless all the families of the earth. And in so doing, he died. He was falsely accused and executed as a criminal, as a blasphemer. And he was everything but that, everything righteous, no wickedness in him. And God allowed it so that he could empathize with our weaknesses at a level unimaginable. In every point you've been tempted, he's been tempted too. Every point you've been done wrong, he's been done wrong too. If you want to compare scars, don't even get started with him. But he does this so that he can become a faithful high priest. Therefore, verse 17, therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, that is reconciliation, for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted." Charles Spurgeon said, you wouldn't want an angel to live with you because the angel would wind up judging you because angels have never suffered. You'd want the Son of God living with you, the Son of Man. He would understand some of your quirks. Therefore, based on what we just read, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. You see a great house? You don't talk to that house. You talk to the homeowner. You talk to the decorator. If it's a great house, if you meet the architect, you would uh, give the architect some praise. If you visit some of these legendary houses like the White House or the Broadmoor, who's been to the Broadmoor? Uh, you learn about the building process. 
And the builders, they're the ones that get the glory, not the building itself. And so it's declared here that Christ is worthy of more honor than Moses. He's greater than Moses. We've seen from the start of the book, he's greater than the prophets. The book opens right with a bang. God, who at various times spoke to us in times past through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, through whom he made the worlds. So he's greater than the prophets. He goes on to say he's greater than the angels, God's messengers. He's greater than the angels. And yet he made himself lower than the angels to become one of us and to live and to suffer and to experience the human experience as we just read about in the opening verses there. And so here he's declared to be greater than Moses. We're going to see he's going to be declared to be greater than Joshua, greater than the high priest, greater than the temple, greater than the tabernacle, greater than the sacrifice. It's all about the greatness of Jesus is what this book is about. It's written in a time of the early church to encourage the believers in Jesus, specifically those who are Hebrew. And it relies a lot upon them understanding their history in the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 3 again. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So it's great to be given a tour of a house by a servant, an employee, a staff member. It's even greater to be given a tour of a house by a family member, by the homeowner. And so this house of God that we're part of is blessed by the builder, by his son who gave his life for us. Therefore, rest of verse 7 there, therefore as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore I was angry with that generation. He's quoting from Psalm 95. And said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my way, so I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about what he's fixing to get into. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. He relies on that word today, which goes back to Psalm 95. Today, if you will hear his voice. Today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end while it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So what is the point he's making? He's been declaring the greatness of Jesus 
and how reliable he is, how much better he is, and how we do not need to be like the forefathers who lacked trust in God. When the children of Israel, the Hebrew nation, were delivered from slavery, they were led by God's servant Moses, an 80-year-old man when it started, who led them for what should have been less than a year, but has wound up 40 years of going nowhere while receiving the Torah because of their unbelief. They had sent out 12 spies to spy out the promised land. They were at the border. Go in. 40 days later, they come back, two with a great report, 10 with an evil report. The people turned on Moses, began to complain against the Lord, saying, we can't conquer this land. They said, we look like grasshoppers. Well, that was a ridiculous metaphor. We look like grasshoppers. We can be stomped by these people. And it didn't matter that God had set them free from slavery through some amazing plagues to break the hearts of the Egyptians, to let them go free. Our own country's history will testify it is really hard for a nation to let go of free labor. It really is. And that's basically what happened, cheap labor. And God did it through these miracles. And then the miracle of parting the Red Sea, they should have had faith for anything. But they were a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of people. They were a people, they were, they were enslaved in their minds. Everything's figured out for them. Let me just live a life of leeks and wild onions and garlic and uh, just trudge through life with my little tent here and <clears throat> make the best of it. I don't want any giants to fight. When they came to the bitter waters, it was undrinkable. They started to complain. And the Lord healed the waters. When they were out of water, the Lord gave them water from a rock that Moses struck. When they were out of food, the Lord gave them angels' food, manna from heaven. And yet they're not going to trust him and said, we're going to die. You brought us out here to die in the wilderness. Well, even God has his limits. He said, you know what? You're right. You are not going to enter the promised land. Your children will. So everyone above the age of 20, excluding Joshua and Caleb, who were the two positive spies, died in the wilderness. I think every day around 90 folks keeled over. <laughs> in the land of miracles, they couldn't believe God for more miracles. They hadn't come to a position of rest. Verse 12 again, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end while it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who having heard, rebelled. They heard the voice of God and they rebelled. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? 
but to those who did not obey. For we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief. I I can't stop there. Let's go on. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. But we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Those are words spoken to those who refuse to believe. But if we believe God's word, mix it with faith, trust him, he didn't bring us this far to leave us. Think about what he did in the past. This is, this is why we overcome by the word of our testimony. We remind ourselves of, we, of what was done in the past and face the future. Sure, life has disappointments. God doesn't do things the way we want. I don't have answers for everybody's questions, but I do know he is to be trusted. He is to be trusted. Some of the things we believe are things God didn't say. We took a bunch of verses and put them together and built a case that isn't biblical. An example, this is a ridiculous example, but there's a verse that says that Judas went out and hung himself. There's another verse that says, go and do likewise. There's another verse that says, whatever you do, do it quickly. And there's another verse that says, the Lord speaks once, yea, twice. Plain Bible hopscotch is what gets us in trouble and... <clears throat> Just be careful with it. Make sure it's the whole counsel of God. Make sure it lines up with the heart of God. In the long run, we all have eternal life. But in the short run, we go through trials. The Bible says it. But we're assured victory. And when you come to a place of understanding that and embracing that, there's a rest in that. I'd like to talk to you today about a promise that you may not hear talked about much, but the Bible promises rest. It's not so much speaking of a good night's sleep, although he does give his beloved sweet sleep, but it's a rest in your life. Even though you're facing battles, you're not fighting for your identity. You know who you are in Christ, and you know, as Greg declared earlier, you know the Father sees you. And I can rest in that fact and go forward believing the Lord and not succumbing to doubt and unbelief and fear and anxiety and resentment and jealousy for others that may not be facing the same trial. Trust me, we all go through trials. And the Bible tells us to weep with those who weep, that's those who are going through trials, and to rejoice with those who rejoice, that's those that are experiencing victories. So constantly in New Testament church life, this is happening. There's a time to mourn, and there's a time to dance, and sometimes they're simultaneously. There's the family that's rejoicing that Peter got set free from jail, and there's a family planning a funeral for John's brother James, the first martyr of the 11 apostles. 
And then they all rejoiced when the Lord took Herod out, the one responsible for those things. So in this Christian walk, if you come to a place, I'm going to commit to the Lord no matter what. There's a rest that comes to your soul. And sometimes we have to return to that. Renew our commitment to the Lord. There's a little song I sing sometimes when I'm tempted to be anxious. It goes like this. My life is yours to have. I give it unto you. Released from my own grasp, I give it unto you, and I rest in your hands. I rest in your hands. I rest in your hands. My life is in your hands. As little kids, we learned the song, He got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole wide world in his hands. It's that place of rest. Is this biblical? It is. It is. We just read this as the Holy Spirit says, Hebrews 3, today, if you will hear his voice, faith comes by hearing. If you will hear what the Lord has said, if you will hear what he is saying, and not harden your hearts as those people did in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the first appearance of the word rest in the book of Hebrews. The InterVarsity Press New Testament Commentary says it best, so let's just read what they say. Rest here describes the end of wandering and restlessness, producing calmness and tranquility. It refers to the land of Canaan and the promise of a state of peace and provision. The Canaan rest was also a symbol of a greater rest available to God's people in the future. Their failure to stop grumbling against Yahweh led a million-plus Israelites into such hardened hearts that they were unable to take the opportunity to enter the land of promise when coming to its borders. For 40 years, they perished at an average of almost 90 deaths a day until all who left Egypt, excluding Joshua and Caleb, were dead. Who wants that rest? That rest. Hebrews 3 quotes this from Psalm 95, verbatim. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. At one time, God was going to take him out and start over again with Moses. And I love this relationship Moses has with God. Moses said, Lord, if you say that, the people will say you were unable to fulfill your promise to your people, so you killed them. 
There's nothing God can't do. But one thing he will not do is use a grumbling, complaining, unbelieving person. Now, they were that way at the beginning, and he still blessed them. I don't know when they crossed the line, but eventually they crossed the line, (laughs) and that was it. It takes courageous people to do the impossible things. Remember the story of David and Goliath. Goliath was this giant who challenged the armies of Israel. Let me settle the matter between our countries. Either our armies can fight or you can send out a champion to fight me. And whichever the two of us wins, we will be your servants. He was lying, but that's what he said. So they took the bait. Who wants to go into battle and get killed? So they're waiting around on a champion. And this boy named David, a young man, says, I'll go fight him. I remember the Lord delivered me from a bear when I was protecting my father's sheep. And I remember I killed a lion. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the Lord? So with five stones and a sling and a staff, he goes and faces this giant, knocks him out with one shot, then jumps off top of him, pulls his sword out of its sheath, and cuts his head off. So he used his testimony to encourage him to face the battle, right? Now he has a new testimony. What does he do with that new testimony? He goes to face another battle. Not immediately, but it's a battle that would be in the future. He took the giant's head for a walk. Look, this is what it feels like to be short. Come see... Come see what will one day be called the city of David. He took him to Jerusalem that was not yet under Israelite control, but it would be under David's reign. So what battles have you faced that can encourage you to face the battles of today? And when winning the battles of today, go hunting for the next one. Not that we want to pick fights, but... Amen. So this word rest here in Psalm 95 is the Hebrew word manuka. Can you say manucha? Manucha. It means repose, or adverbially it means peacefully. Figuratively it means consolation. Specifically it means matrimony. You know, you don't have holy matrimony if you're fighting all the time, husbands and wives. Uh, concretely it means an abode, a house means to be comfortable, ease, quiet as a resting place, means to be still. So there was a rest that was available to the children of God, even though they were going to face a land full of giants that made some of their spies feel like grasshoppers. The Lord said, that's it for you guys. So not only did they die in the wilderness, but they were miserable for 40 years. Surely one of them would have repented right? So the word menucha is used in several other places in the Old Testament. Numbers 10 says, the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them for the three days journey to search out a menucha, resting place. So you put the ark of the covenant in a resting place. Deuteronomy 12, you shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not yet come to the manucha, the rest and the inheritance 
which the Lord your God is giving. So this rest spoke to the land of Canaan, their future conquest, but it also spoke to the faith that the Lord wanted them to have in their hearts. Psalm 23, famous passage, David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the Menucha waters, the peaceful, restful waters. Rest, Menucha. In Psalm 132, he wrote, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my Menucha, my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. The Lord chose it. Did it last? No, unbelief crept in, and uh, they lost out. In 1 Chronicles 22, David was given this promise. Behold, a son will be born to you who should be called a man of Manucha, a man of rest. And I will give him Manucha, rest, from all his enemies all around, and his name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. And it happened when they uh, returned the Ark of the Covenant to its rightful place. There was a visitation of God, and it was amazing. And it's recorded in the Kings and in the Chronicles. And Solomon comes out and says this to the people, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest, or manucha, to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. But did that last? No, unbelief eventually came along and even led Solomon astray. Through lack of trust in God, he made allegiances with foreign gods, foreign nations. Isaiah the prophet, chapter 11, had this to say, verse 10, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. That's Jesus, the root and the offspring of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. That's his ministry, that's him on the cross, that's his resurrection. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his manucha, his resting place, shall be glorious. That's our promise. Isaiah 28, this is quoted in, I think, in Acts 4. For with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the rest, the manuka, which wish you may cause the weary to rest, and this is a refreshing, yet they would not hear. This is a prophecy about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you can pray in the Spirit and experience refreshing. Pray in the Spirit and be restored to your rightful position of rest. Yet there are people who refuse to believe, will not hear, will argue. That's not what that verse is saying. Chapter 32 of Isaiah, my people shall dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. That's Manuka. This is a prophecy that is ours to receive if you're part of the Lord's people. Chapter 66, I love this, opens with this word. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? He's fixing to tell them that you can't build a house to contain the Lord. Well, this is often called the Lord's house, but the Lord doesn't live here. 
He he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He uses structures to gather his people. Heaven is his throne. What can any human build to compare to that? And the earth is his footstool. Who has a lazy boy at the house? That's heaven. (laughs) Who's been around the world? That's God's footstool. So where is the house you're going to build him? Where is the place of my rest, my manucha? He'll tell you. For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. So he's made heaven. He's made the throne. He has a resting place. He made it. They all exist. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contract spirit who trembles at my word. That's the one who gets to taste the resting place. Where is his resting place? With the humble, with the believing, with those that are repentant, have a contrite spirit. Jesus had this to say, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Two Greek words there are related for the word rest. The first one he used is anapao, and the last one he used there is antiposis. Anapao means to repose, literally or figuratively, to be exempt to remain, to refresh, to take ease, give, take rest. When David killed the giant, his father got exempted from Texas, from Texas, <laughs> from taxes, from taxes. Would that, not, would that not be a blessing to be tax exempt? Right? To be exempt from Texas, that would not be a blessing. It's related to the word pause. Anapausis, intermission, recreation, rest. The prefix ana, pauses, heightens the power of the word pause, or pauses, or pao. It means to repeat or intensify. So repeated, intensified pausing is the word that Jesus used. Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, he had an incredible trial he was going to face. It was so intense, he sweat like he was bleeding while he's praying before that night. Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. He's about to die for our sins. There's another way, let this cup pass from me. There's another way. There's some other way. Then he submitted to the Father's will, and from a position of rest, he went through the trial, victoriously three days later, rising from the dead.
So we read this earlier. To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Believing precedes obeying. If you obey before you believe, then you're believing in your obedience. That's salvation by works. We believe, then we obey, right? If I believe in the laws of Texas, I will obey them when I'm behind the wheel. When I remember to. (laughs) Therefore, chapter 4, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Who wants to have a promise of God unreceived in your life? Nobody does. There's 13 characteristics of willful unbelieving. If any of these hit you between the eyes, repent. Willful unbelief is based on an unwillingness to believe. I'm just not going to believe. I don't want to. I pride myself in being a skeptic. Willful unbelief sets false standards and ignores real ones. If there's a God, why is there evil in the world? Meanwhile, ignoring all the good that's in the world. The evil in the world is created by man. Man's problem. If you want God to put a stop to it, that's called judgment day. Uh, Get ready for it. Become a believer. Willful unbelief claims to want more evidence, but never has enough. When Jesus was ministering one day, a voice from heaven said, this is my son. And people in the crowd said, oh, that's just thunder. Always some creative way to come up with a reason not to believe. That's, That's how creative we are when we're negative. Willful unbelievers do biased research with personal agendas. They start out with the end in mind. It's called a hypothesis. And everything they do is to prove that point. That's why scientific research has to be backed up by more than one survey, by more than one experiment. They refuse to change opinions they formed before they were informed. Willful unbelief. Willful unbelievers seek to discredit or penalize contrary witnesses. They don't like what you have to say, they're going to make you suffer. This is cancel culture, right? Willful unbelief can lead to cancel culture, to intimidate those with facts. So before I start whining about cancel culture, I have to check my own heart. Is there anybody in my life I write off just because I don't agree with them? That's cancel culture. The door swings both ways. It just does. Got to watch our own hearts. They will always do their best to reject disliked truth. I don't like it, so I'm going to reject it. Willful unbelievers use their abilities to work against believing. They will do everything in their power to convince themselves and everyone around them that God brought them out here in the wilderness to let them die. Willful unbelieving leads to an unteachable condition. And they don't want to believe you're wasting your time trying to teach them. Don't cancel them, just pray for them. Lord, give them a wake-up call. Willful unbelievers tend to be self-centered. This is the root of sin. The middle letter, the big I. To the tune of Amazing Grace, it's the American hymn. I, 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 
I, I, I, I. I mean, it's, it's, they, they market on it. Who has an iPhone? An iPad? They cannot receive the benefits of believing. They're getting ripped off. And finally, willful unbelief can be, this is a characteristic, it can be repented of today. Why does it have to be today? It's got to be sometime. If you're going to do it tomorrow, tomorrow never comes because there's always tomorrow, there's always another tomorrow, right? There's never the final tomorrow. Repent today. That's why he said, today if you will hear his voice and not be like the wicked ones in the wilderness. The Lord's promise of rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, did not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. There was a day they were to say yes to the will of God, and they said no on the wrong day. And today's the wrong day to tell God no. Look at verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Are you tired of the stress, the anxiety, the worry? Unbelief brings no benefits. An arguer would come up with something, but I'm telling you, it brings no eternal benefits. It's good for your health. Believing is. Rest in the Lord. We sang about it. It's good for us. Watch this. For the next few moments, quiet your mind and listen carefully with your whole heart. Take a deep breath in. Hold it. Now breathe out. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Deep breath in. Hold it. Now breathe it out. Jesus didn't say you might find rest, or that somehow you'll find rest as you wander aimlessly through this life. He said, come to me. I will give you rest. I will give you rest. It's a promise. He goes on to tell us that he is gentle and that in him our very souls will find rest. Breathe in. Hold. Breathe out. You can take Jesus at his word. You can choose to take all your cares and worries anxiety and pain, habits and hurts, and give them to Jesus. Are you restless? Are you weary and worn out? If given the opportunity, could today be that day of rest? As you breathe in and breathe out, remember that Jesus is patiently waiting for you to come to him 
bringing everything that's weighing you down. Jesus is waiting to give you rest. Rest is not based on breathing exercises, although they're good for you. It's based on the Word of God and our believing it. And if you surf the internet long, you'll find people arguing about when is the day of rest. I'm telling you, the text says today is. Today is the day. And when it's tomorrow, today will be the day of rest. Let's rest in the Lord. Let's return to wholehearted devotion to faith in Jesus as true, genuine believers. Can I get an amen?
We. Oui.